Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, Jan, did you know crime does pay? Sort of. Uh, you wouldn't believe it, but Vicky Petritus. Petratus. I've got to get the... Petratus. Petratus. Uh, Petratus. You say potato, I say potato. Indeed. Petratus. <laughs> now I've got a, a now mental you jinx Petratus. Petratus. Vicky Petratus has made a killing writing about true crime. I thought I'd put that pun in there. Sorry. So, Vicky, welcome to 3CR. Thank you, David. I'm a bit hectic now, aren't I? Inside the Law, 25 Years of True Crime Writing is the title of your book, your latest book, should I say, and it provides an outline of some of the cases you've actually covered and written about. And it's also then interspersed with your own journey and development as a writer. What was the impetus for putting it all together? I think the impetus was that I was doing a lot of um, public speaking and a lot of author talks. And while people want to hear about the crimes and they want to hear about the impact and the families and the outcome. What I think people were interested in is what did you see and what did you learn and what did, you know, the, the kind of the, the behind the scenes stories. And so I thought, you know, it's time. I've never been in my books. There's a lot of authors like Helen Garner and, um, you know, that do this really well. Robin Bowles is in her books and they become, Chloe Hooper's in hers and they become part of the story, but I'd never done that. But the novelist often puts themselves as a, a, a sort of shadow in the background. Their, their experiences influence them. But you're writing true crime. You're actually, it's more than dabbling, with things that have actually happened. And it yeah. must have an impact on you. Yeah, and I think that's what I wanted to explore. And it's not just the impact, it's what I learned from it. And when I write about something and when I, I interview victims and then you hear the same stories over and over again and you start to go, gee, I wonder if that's a pattern. And that's kind of what I then started to look at, resilience in people. How do you survive and thrive when something catastrophic happens? Well, I sort of want to come to that towards the end, but what, I, what fascinates me is the actual nature of writing true crime because unlike a novelist, you, you can't actually control the cast list. No, no, it, yeah, it is mean, what it is. You've got the Phillip Island murders, which is what begins the sort of accounts of the true crimes that have occurred, and that occurred back in 1986. But there are the principal players, there are the various parts of the police departments involved, there are relations and um, sort of um, partners and, and, and such like, mothers-in-law and, and all these sorts of things. How do you manage it? Because as a novelist, you can contain it, but as a true crime writer, you can't. Yeah, look, I think that there's people that you focus on, and often as a true crime author, you focus on the people that you, that will give you an interview. And um, I often get asked with the Frankston murders that they, there were hundreds of police, and they'll be, oh, I worked on that, but my name wasn't in the book. So, yeah, there's only about four or five investigators because there can't be 200 because no one can keep track on them. So you have to pin a story to a smaller amount of people, just like a novelist would. But you've also got to, yes, contain it yourself and manage you yeah, yeah. those uh, people, yeah. uh, et cetera. 
The writing style also fascinates me. Now, what I'm about to read is a passage from the De Grucci murders, where a mother and her two children were bludgeoned to death. Next to be examined was Sarah's room. A big white teddy bear sat on the floor by the door. Sarah's body lay on pink sheets on a single bed. Posters of her favourite bands were stuck to the wall above where she lay. A Walkman was on the floor by the bed. Resting on Sarah's head was a blue and white coloured seat cushion from a, from a chair in the dining room. The cushion was heavily bloodstained. The teacher had sustained the same severe head and facial injuries as his mother. Now, that is almost... Um, plain in terms of it, it's sparse and yet there's a power behind it. And that's from me literally looking at the crime scene photo and I think what I probably tried to show then is that there's a teddy bear and it's a little girl's room or it's a teenage girl's room and this catastrophic event has occurred, In this violent event has occurred right in the centre of what everyone else is going, that sounds like my bedroom. Yes, but also then, because we know that the murder has occurred, because we know it's a real event, it actually did happen. Yeah. It, it gives and imbues what you say with an incredible power. You, you, you don't have to embroider. Well, you don't have to embroider. And in true crime, you can't. But that's not to say that you don't... Um, and I think I say this in my introduction. The story is the story. It's the, the storytelling that makes the difference. And it's, it's, it's my lens that has made the difference to this. One of my most powerful books was Salvation. And um, when Rod Brabon came to me with that story, he basically, he had written about 17 pages and it was pretty much the root F word. All the way there, Salvation Army, uh, effed, yeah, yeah. and it, that was about it. And then I turned that into something much more powerful and readable and for public consumption. So the power is in the storytelling. In the storytelling, and, and, but, yeah, and what's behind it as well. I also love the detail that you go in. And, again, we know this is what people have, the investigators have actually looked for. So, again, the Phillip Island murders, we're looking for a break in the salt encrustation on the railing of the bridge, and that's an indication that something might have happened. Yeah, that someone might have jumped off the bridge. And I think it's those... People love that in my in my books. They love the police detail and the um, kind of that forensic glimpse that you get it on TV, but a lot of the stuff that you get on TV is false. And what you get in my books is, is investigative tools and investigative um, indicators that people go, oh, of course, but... It makes them smarter as investigators, investigators themselves. But in some ways, they're almost ordinary, but they're so important. I mean, the um, the Lindsay Jellet, uh, well, supposedly it was a hit and run. There are six elements that invariably go with a hit run. The first three are injuries to the shin area where the bumper strikes the victim, then injuries to the hip where the person hits the bonnet, then injuries to the head when the victim hits the windscreen or the top of the car. The next two things to expect at the scene of a hit run are lots of blood and some trace of the car involved, broken glass or plastic or paint flakes. Again... This is actually very important detail, and that detail speaks to so much more. There's a story behind that detail, and if you know how to interpret it, it tells you so much. 
Yeah, when I wrote that story and I wrote that if you get hit by a car, you're invariably knocked out of your shoes. It's just a force of physics. And ages later, I was looking at another story and I was reading statements and it said, you know, we found the guy lying on the nature strip and he didn't have his shoes on. And I went, He's, it's a hit run. Yeah. So, you know, I become smarter too because I understand. And then hopefully the reader, if you do come across someone lying on an H strip without their shoes, that you as a reader automatically go, this he's not just a drunk who's fallen over. Mm. He he could he could be a hit run victim. But you've built up this familiarity over yeah. the years by yeah. talking to policemen, detectives and uh, interpreting Yeah, well now I'm writing fiction. I'm doing a PhD and writing a fiction novel and I'm taking all of this knowledge, which is inane, in, you know, it, but pulling it all together and saying I'm, I'm moving forward to write something in fiction that's really authentic. Now, as a true crime writer, you can't actually <clears throat> control the ending. And that's the fascinating thing about the events you recount and detail here. Because we are left, the reader is left with this... Uh, Fascin- well, fascination, is that the right word? We, we wonder and ponder about the motivations and the psychology behind the actions. I mean, you've got a chapter in there on Risdale and, and such like. You've got the character, character, do I call him that? The, the Weewa rapist who raped a 91-year-old woman and his claim when he's finally caught is, oh, well, I've turned to God now. But we're left wondering the, about the psychology of these people. Yeah, I think when I first started to write true crime, it was because I wanted to know why people did it. And now I just think some people are nutbags. <laughs> can you say that? that, you, that well, like, there is no, you can't, we can't look through our regular person lens and we can't look to uh, a rapist who rapes a 91-year-old woman and punches her in the face. I don't understand that and I'm never going to. So uh, I think sometimes it's a waste of energy and it's a waste of time for me as a writer to try and figure out that we're not on the same playing field we're not on the same planet but what I'm interested in is how does she cope and how did the police react to the vulnerability of the victim and how did that spur them on to find him mm. so it, it's I don't understand what he did but that rapist was really interesting because I write about it in the book when he was doing his video reconstruction walking through the house and the cops are saying to him when you entered her house you realized she wasn't consenting you realized that was wrong yes and then when you punched her in the face and held the pillow over her head you realized she was not consenting to sex yes and you can see he's getting a bit grumpy about this and when you raped her you realized she wasn't consenting and he's going yes and then he looks at the camera and he says i only did it for 10 minutes yeah as if, oh, that explains oh, silly it. us. It was only 10 minutes. Oh, let's just pack everything up and go home. But what you, what you see is as a teacher, you know, sometimes you see kids, I only hit her once. I only stole five pencils. And you see this. So it, it kind of, it's like this guy has grown to adulthood and he's still operating at that maybe grade two, two stealing level. someone's pencils level and he never moved on developmentally. But even... With uh, the de Grucci murder, um, there's that notion of getting parole at the end or or the lawyer. Well, he's just been released. Since the book came out, I think it was last week, there was headlines that Matthew de Grucci was released. But 
his lawyer was saying consideration. And should we have consideration for these people? Uh, are they influenced by their own psychology over which they have no control? And look, Matthew de Grucci was an interesting case. He never admitted what he did. The police had unequivocal evidence to suggest that he'd killed his mother, brother and sister really violently. And they can only think that he had fought with his mum about borrowing her car. Now, to me, if you have someone at 18 who, after an argument of, I want to borrow your car, no, you can't, okay, die, 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 that to me is a very dangerous person. So he went in at 18. He's coming out in his early 40s. He's really had no... are Are we confident that he can deal with the next person who says, no, you can't do that? Without killing people, I don't. I, I wouldn't want to be living near him. But here we go now. How has this affected you? Because each of these chapters is interspersed with your own development, and I'm frightened and scared by some of what you're saying and and the fact that they're true. How have you been affected as a writer? I think writing, when you write, you process. And I've seen this for me, I've seen this with so many people, that you go, you have inside you a story and if it's not directionalised, is that a word? I just might, might have made Good that up. Um, if, if you don't have an outlet for it, it can become quite toxic. And I have seen through story and through the telling of story that it just releases it. It's like pressure cooker. But you've also put yourself in the position yeah. where you're faced and confronted. But I'm processing it through writing all the time. I never hold anything in. It's always processed. And the other thing there is you've also tried to help the victims. Yeah. In what you've done and you've kept in contact. Yeah, yeah. We just recently ran a campaign for the Russell family, Natalie Russell, the third victim of the Frankston serial killer. Her parents were about to lose their house and the kids, the family uh, came to me and said, could you help? And we we saved their house and raised $40,000. So, Vicky, we could keep talking. We could. Uh, but unfortunately, we mm. can't. There's the notion of how you access all the data and information and now that it's, there's a cost associated and such like. But the book is Inside the Law, 25 Years of True Crime Writing. It's from Clandestine Press, and it's Vicky Petra... Petratus. Petra- I can't do it. What you am can't I doing? do Vicky it. Petratus. Vicky Petratus. Thank you, Vicky. Thank you, David. Okay. Well, one of the reasons we read is to experience a different life, whether it is adventurous or filled with emotions we never had to encounter. I'm speaking with Chloe Higgins this morning about her debut novel, The Girls. Welcome, Chloe. Thanks for having me. Look, I'm going to give a summary of why this book happened. There was a car accident, your father was injured, your two younger sisters died. Your, afterwards, your dad had PTSD and cried continually. Your mum, quoting, is the glue that keeps the three of us together. Who tried to fill any silence with chatter. And Chloe Higgins, she was an A1 studious girlfriend and your life changed. Yeah, I've got some heavy conversations <laughs> happening in the studio today. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. I think when you're 17 years old um, and I guess kind of living in this really privileged and insular and sheltered bubble and then all of a sudden um, your two sisters um, are passed, passed away in a car accident, it your body just goes into absolute shock. And so... It wasn't just the teenage recklessness. There really was a desire to forget. 
Oh, yeah. I think it was a couple of things. I think in one part it was just pure escapism and I'd never been one to indulge in any form of escapism Mm -hmm. really before that. So it was very much off the back of this kind of sudden and shocking traumatic incident. But it was also kind of this sense of like, well, now that I know that life isn't going to be good um, just because I'm good, why not go out and experience as much as I can? Well, this is where I thought your writing was so illuminating. You know, the drunkenness, I think I can remember, but there was the marijuana smoking and the first time you snorted cocaine, I snorted uh, cocaine or injected heroin. Those descriptions were absolutely incredible of what was happening internally and your senses. So was that good memory or good writing? Oh, I think uh, both, but also coupled with maybe good diary keeping or maybe not good for my mother who had to read them at the time, I think, and found them quite traumatic. But, yeah, how um, did you feel about your mum reading your diaries? She oh, knew a lot about you that you yeah. had, hadn't tried quite divulged. <laughs> oh, look, I think in hindsight, you know, I think I just feel lucky to have an incredible mother who, you know, is was always going to put her children first, but... I mean, in many ways, the book, all this like drug, sex, rock and roll in the book, actually, that's just backstory. The central question of the book is how do I have a healthy relationship with my parents within the context of our shared griefs, but also really different worldviews and politics and lifestyles? How do I, you know, be a better daughter without um, draining my own mental health, you know? So I think that I just move between feeling suffocated, as I think most daughters do often Mm. in that mother-daughter relationship Um, and just having compassion for her because I can't imagine what she's been through like Mm. and how she remains together. Well your therapist suggested that you make differentials between you and your mother and you know this was coming up through the book and then when your mother said well you were going off to New York and your mother said can I come you said (laughs) yes. (laughs) Trying to be a good daughter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, mm. Well, it's and it's very evident that your mother's experience in New York was quite different to yours. You know, you account how, how stifling it was to have her living in your space, the rules you set her and how guilty that made you feel. In contrast, she was writing on her Facebook, on her blog, what, well... How she was all, every bad incident turned into a good story. (laughs) She just laughs at everything. I think that's just my mother. She just, I mean, I think that's one of the things I admire about her. She will just laugh at everything. And I think she'll often say to me, like, you know, I'm like, Mom, I feel so rude because, you know, she wanted to just, like, sleep together in the same bed. But I was like, oh, Mom, I really feel like I'm 30. Like, maybe we can just sleep separately. And um, because she was just over there visiting me in New York for two weeks. And I just felt so bad about that. And she's like... It's fine. Like, I, you know, you're putting this guilt on yourself. I'm not putting this guilt on you. But, I mean, you know, then at the same time. Like, but. Um, you mentioned diary writing before, but you move from diary writing into the necessity really to have two hours of writing every morning. And this is when you told your mother to go, go on out, out into New York City, experience things by yourself. Give me quiet to write. Yeah. I th- when did that diary writing to two hours writing kick in? Um, I've been writing now for about 12 years and it started off as a therapeutic thing where I was keeping journals to process the grief of the accident. And yeah, eventually um, 
I started thinking about writing for publication, but of course, you know, as with any learning any new skill, writing is a long apprenticeship. And so it took me probably another five years to work out that what worked for me was safeguarding these two sacred hours first thing upon waking, not only for my practice and process, but even just to ground myself now. Um, and yeah, and I was in New York to work. And so I needed that time. I needed to keep those two hours sacred um, hence asking mum to be out of the studio. We were in a studio apartment together, right? Like, and there wasn't even a door, like, on the, between the sleeping area and the, like, so. Close just, living. Yeah, 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 yeah. That you were trying to separate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, what about your dad? What kind of writing did he do? Um, well, dad kept a diary after the accident that he then emailed me when I was putting together this book and which actually now forms a whole chapter in the book, which I think is, seems to be one of the chapters that people really respond quite strongly to. Um, and he now says he's writing his own book. I don't think he realizes how long of a process it is to kind of learn how to write, but I don't think that matters either. I think you know, even just as a therapeutic thing, I think it's it's a really positive thing for him to be doing. Even the editor gets some quotes in this book <laughs> where she's questioned you and it's made you reflect even further into sort of some of the aspects of, of your mental being. Yeah. I, I'm not interested in answers and I'm not often quite annoyed by people that want to give me answers. What I'm interested in is is questions, you know. And so where I was bringing in my editor was often where she was asking me questions that I didn't have a fully formed opinion on yet. And so it was my way of kind of working through that or teasing through that or showing that even though I might not have an answer to it, I was actively at least trying to think through that. But having her voice in there in terms of like quoting her and stuff was a way for me to kind of show that tension rather than present this kind of perfect, mm. I was sad and now I'm happy because yeah. that's just not how it works, you know? No. I thought what you did with the book too, because, you know, you, you've had a reflection, mm. but it's sort of the gut stuff that you wrote right back when when you were really, really hurting um, was, was just incredible. Now, I've never been into a fishbowl. Mm. A fishbowl? Mm. Well, I wasn't in a fishbowl either. I just heard about... So I guess uh, for listeners, you're referring to the psychiatric ward where yeah. I was. And I was in, I guess, the kind of um, a bit more, I don't know what you would call it, but it wasn't, it was a bit more lower security, I guess, um, the section that I was in. And it was kind of for for young adults. But there was this fishbowl that um, a couple of the other patients referred to. That was basically a super high security ward where the patients were always under observation. But I was never checked in there it was just this kind of mythical place that got yeah, talked but about even your ability to look at other people in there and write about them it was just fascinating for me <laughs> you know this line are you mad bad sad or glad is that really a terminology that's asked in there yeah I mean that's not me observing other people that's just me writing down what other people say like oh. that was like word for word dialogue that was a question that somebody asked me yeah that was just and this whole thing about getting a cigarette every hour. Yeah, I didn't make that up. That, oh, I just no. wrote down what happened. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But And linking that with the, the Chinese medicine that, uh, what is it, lungs are connected to grief. When you smoke, mm. you, can't, you can't cry. Yes, yeah, so I studied a little bit of kinesiology, which draws in elements of 
traditional Chinese medicine, um, and so that was something that had come up when I was studying that that um, that I was quite blown away by because I had never smoked any cigarettes. I was like the kind of girl that would like pull a cigarette out of someone's mouth at a party, so rude, so condescending. And then the accident happened and I was like smoking durries and like, you know, like it's just this complete turnaround. Um, and then I remember going in when I started studying kinesiology and the the teachers kind of talking about that link was crazy yes. to me. So that was, fascinating. That was really, that was mm. really interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, I like also, I'm quoting from the book here, that you sort of find out a little bit more about normal people. You know, what is normal? Instead of turning to drink and cigarettes and sex, they take their dog for a slow walk through a suburban park and feel better for it. Yeah. Yeah. And another bit, I assumed people's routines for building a good life were innate, not something they worked at. It is a pleasure to discover otherwise. They're very, you know, sort of nice things, but... I don't know what's normal. <laughs> well, I think maybe less normal and maybe more healthy, right? Like what is a healthy way to hold a life together? I think it's not something that we talk about. It's this thing that we assume that people know. Um, but we're not learning things like emotional regulation and whatever in high school, right? Like why are we not, you know, I don't know, being guided emotion. through those things? Yeah. Like it doesn't make any sense to me. Another thing that you talk about is memory discrepancy. And this is going to be really interesting if your dad gets to write that book, isn't it? <laughs> You'd be able to compare the copies. You know, even even through the book you talk about things that you thought was were, were true but didn't happen at all. Yeah, I mean, there's not a huge number of them, but there are um, a few. Um, and I think there's a huge body of research that just backs it up. You know, this idea of memory being fallible um, and events being really subjective and perspective based it's not it's not a new idea but it was um it was very eye opening to to be confronted yeah, with those yeah 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 definitely and finally at the end of the book we get the um you actually ask for memories of your two sisters and that's when i started crying <laughs> it, that was a beautiful last Last way to cement it all together. Yeah. I thought it was. I know you, um, like Vicky, were doing a PhD and writing, putting this book into a published format, and uh, I think you succeeded. I think you're going to do very well with that PhD. <laughs> Another quote from Chloe Higgins' book, The Girls: "The best writing is the hard writing, the honest writing," and that's what you did in Spades. <laughs> Made uh, that the book about. Chloe Higgins, The Girls, ah, published by Picador and Pan Macmillan. It's been quite a traumatic uh, morning, Jen. <laughs> it has. It has, David. The, the detail. But I had been speaking with Vicky Petratus on Inside the Law, 25 Years of True Crime Writing, and it's from Clandestine Press. So that brings us to another week. Indeed, and we'll have another packed house next, next week. week.